0: Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan, by Robert E. Howard. Episode 8. The Slithering Shadow, Part 2. Chapter 2. When Conan turned, in compliance with Thallis' request, to glare at the doorway opposite, Natala had been standing just behind him, close to the side of the Stegian. The instant the Cimmerian's back was turned, Thallis, with a pantherish quickness almost incredible, clapped her hand over Natala's mouth, stifling the cries she tried to give. Simultaneously, the Stegian's other arm was passed about the blonde girl's supple waist, and she was jerked back against the wall which seemed to give way as Thallis's shoulder pressed against it. A section of the wall swung inward, and through a slit that opened in the tapestry, Thallis slid with her captive, just as Conan wheeled back. Inside was utter blackness, as the secret door swung to again. Thallis paused to fumble at it for an instant, apparently sliding home a bolt, and as she took her hand from Natala's mouth to perform this act, the Brithunian girl began to scream at the top of her voice. Thallis's laugh was like poisoned honey in the darkness. Scream, if you will, little fool. It will only shorten your life. At that, Natala ceased suddenly and cowered, shaking in every limb. Why did you do this? she begged. What are you going to do? I am going to take you down this corridor for a short distance, answered Thallis, and leave you for one who will sooner or later come for you. Ah! Natala's voice broke in a sob of terror. Why should you harm me? "'I have never injured you!' "'I want your warrior. "'You stand in my way. "'He desires me. "'I could read the look in his eyes. "'But for you, he would be willing to stay here and be my king. "'When you are out of the way, he will follow me.' "'He will cut your throat,' answered Natala with conviction, "'knowing Conan better than Thallus did. "'We shall see.' "'answered the Stygian coolly from the confidence of her power over men. "'At any rate, you will not know whether he stabs or kisses me "'because you will be the bride of him who dwells in darkness. "'Come!' "'Half mad with terror, Natala fought like a wild thing, "'but it availed her nothing. "'With a lithe strength she would not have believed possible in a woman. Vallis picked her up and carried her down the black corridor "'as if she had been a child. "'Natala did not scream again.' Remembering the Stygian's sinister words, the only sounds were her desperate quick panting and Thalys's soft taunting lascivious laughter. Then the Brithunian's fluttering hand closed on something in the dark, a jeweled dagger, hilt jutting from Thalys's gem-crusted girdle. Natala jerked it forth and struck blindly and with all her girlish power. A scream burst from Thalys's lips, feline in its pain and fury. She reeled and Natala slipped from her relaxing grasp to bruise her tender limbs on the smooth stone floor. Rising, she scurried to the nearest wall and stood there panting and trembling, flattening herself against the stones. She could not see Thalis, but she could hear her. The Stygian was quite certainly not dead. She was cursing in a steady stream, and her fury was so concentrated and deadly that Natala felt her bones turn to wax, her blood to ice. ''Where are you, you little she-devil?'' gasped Thalys. ''Let me get my fingers on you again and I'll...'' Gatala grew physically sick as Thalys described the bodily injuries she intended to inflict on her rival. The Steejan's choice of language would have shamed the toughest courtesan in Aquilonia. Gatala heard her groping in the dark and then a light sprang up. Evidently whatever fear Thalys felt of the Black Corridor was submerged in her anger. The light came from one of the radium gems which adorned the walls of Zoothill This phallus had rubbed, and now she stood bathed in its reddish glow, a light different from that which the others had emitted. One hand was pressed to her side, and blood trickled between the fingers. But she did not seem weakened or badly hurt, and her eyes blazed fiendishly. What little courage remained to Natala ebbed away at sight of the Stegen standing limbed in that weird glow. Her beautiful face contorted with a passion that was no less than hellish. She now advanced with a pantherish tread, drawing her hand away from her wounded side and shaking the blood drops impatiently from her fingers. Natala saw that she had not badly harmed her rival. The blade had glanced from the jewels of Thalys's girdle and inflicted only a very superficial flesh wound, only enough to rouse the Stygian's unbridled fury. Give me that dagger, you fool, she gritted. "'striding up to the cowering girl. "'Batala knew she ought to fight while she had the chance, "'but she simply could not summon up the courage. "'Never much of a fighter, "'the darkness, violence, and horror of her adventure "'had left her limp mentally and physically. "'Pladys snatched the dagger from her lax fingers "'and threw it contemptuously aside. "'You little slut!' she ground between her teeth, "'slapping the girl viciously with either hand.' Before I drag you down the corridor and throw you into Thog's jaws, I'll have a little of your blood myself. You would dare to knife me. Well, for that audacity, you shall pay. Seizing her by the hair, Thallis dragged her down the corridor a short distance, to the edge of the circle of light. A metal ring showed in the wall, above the level of a man's head. From it depended a silken cord. As in a nightmare, Atala felt her tunic being stripped from her, And the next instant, Thallis had jerked up her wrists and bound them to the ring, where she hung, naked as the day she was born, her feet barely touching the floor. Twisting her head, Natala saw Thallis unhook a jewel-handled whip from where it hung on the wall near the ring. The lashes consisted of seven round silk cords, harder yet more pliant than leather thongs. With a hiss of vindictive gratification, Thallis drew back her arm, and Natala shrieked, As the cords curled across her loins, the tortured girl writhed, twisted and tore agonizedly at the thongs which imprisoned her wrists. She had forgotten the lurking menace her cries might summon, and so apparently had thallis. Every stroke evoked screams of anguish. The whippings Natala had received in the Shemite slave markets paled to insignificance before this. She had never guessed the punishing power of hard-woven silk cords, their caress was more exquisitely painful than any birch twigs or leather thongs. They whistled venomously as they cut the air. Then, as Natala twisted her tear-stained face over her shoulder to shriek for mercy, something froze her cries. Agony gave place to paralyzing horror in her beautiful eyes. Struck by her expression, Phallus checked her lifted hand and whirled quick as a cat. Too late. An awful cry rang from her lips as she swayed back, her arms upflung. Natala saw her for an instant, a white figure of fear etched against a great black shapeless mass that towered over her. Then the white figure was whipped off its feet. The shadow receded with it, and in the circle of dim light Natala hung alone, half fainting with terror. From the black shadows came sounds, incomprehensible and blood-freezing. She heard Thalys' voice pleading frenziedly, But no voice answered. There was no sound except the Stygian's panting voice, which suddenly rose to screams of agony and then broke in hysterical laughter, mingled with sobs. This dwindled to a convulsive panting, and presently this too ceased, and a silence more terrible hovered over the secret corridor. Nauseated with horror, Natala twisted about and dared to look fearfully in the direction the black shape had carried Thallis. She saw nothing, but she sensed an unseen peril, more grisly than she could understand. She fought against a rising tide of hysteria. Her bruised wrists, her smarting body were forgotten in the teeth of this menace, which she dimly felt threatened not only her body, but her soul as well. She strained her eyes into the blackness beyond the rim of the dim light, tense with fear of what she might see. A whimpering gasp escaped her lips, The darkness was taking form. Something huge and bulky grew up out of the void. She saw a great misshapen head emerging into the light. At least she took it for a head, though it was not the member of any sane or normal creature. She saw a great toad-like face, the features of which were as dim and unstable as those of a spectre seen in a mirror of nightmare. Great pools of light that might have been eyes blinked at her, and she shook at the cosmic lust reflected there. She could tell nothing about the creature's body. Its outline seemed to waver and alter subtly, even as she looked at it, yet its substance was apparently solid enough. There was nothing misty or ghostly about it. As it came toward her, she could not tell whether it walked, wriggled, flew or crept. Its method of locomotion was absolutely beyond her comprehension. When it had emerged from the shadows, she was still uncertain as to its nature. The light from the radium gem did not illuminate, as it would have illumined an ordinary creature. Impossible as it seemed, the being seemed almost impervious to the light. Its details were still obscure and indistinct, even when it halted so near that it almost touched her shrinking flesh. Only the blinking, toad-like face stood out with any distinctness. The thing was a blur in the sight, a black blot of shadow that normal radiance would neither dissipate nor illuminate, she decided she was mad because she could not tell whether the being looked up at her or towered above her. She was unable to say whether the dim, repulsive face blinked up at her from the shadows at her feet or looked down at her from an immense height. But if her sight convinced her that whatever its mutable qualities, it was yet composed of solid substance, a sense of feel further assured her of that fact. A dark tentacle, like member, slid about her body, and she screamed at the touch of it on her naked flesh. It was neither warm nor cold, rough nor smooth, it was like nothing that had ever touched her before, and at its caress she knew such fear and shame as she had never dreamed of. All the obscenity and salacious infamy spawned in the muck of the abysmal pits of life seemed to brown her in seas of cosmic filth, and in that instant she knew that whatever form of life this thing represented, it was not a beast. She began to scream uncontrollably. The monster tugged at her as if to tear her from the ring by sheer brutality. Then something crashed above their heads, and a form hurtled down through the air to strike the stone floor. Chapter 3 When Conan wheeled to see the tapestry settling back in place, and to hear Natala's muffled cry, he hurled himself against the wall with a maddened roar. Rebounding from the impact that would have splintered the bones of a lesser man, he ripped away the tapestry, revealing what appeared to be a blank wall. Beside himself, with fury, he lifted his sabre as though to hew through the marble, when a sudden sound brought him about, eyes blazing. A score of figures faced him, yellow men in purple tunics with short swords in their hands. As he turned, they surged in on him with hostile cries. He made no attempt to conciliate them. Maddened at the disappearance of his sweetheart, the barbarian reverted to type. A snarl of bloodthirsty gratification hummed in his bull throat as he leapt, and the first attacker, his short sword overreached by the whistling sabre, went down with his brains gushing from his split skull. Wheeling like a cat, Conan caught a descending wrist on his edge, and the hand gripping the short sword flew into the air, scattering a shower of red drops but Conan had not paused or hesitated. A pantherish twist and shift of his body avoided the blundering rush of two yellow swordsmen, and the blade of one missing its objective was sheathed in the breast of the other. A yell of dismay went up at this mischance, and Conan allowed himself a short bark of laughter as he bounded aside from a whistling cut and slashed under the guard of yet another man of Zothiel. A long spurt of crimson followed his singing edge, and the man crumpled screaming, his belly muscles cut through. The warriors of Zuthor howled like mad wolves. Unaccustomed to battle, they were ridiculously slow and clumny compared to the tigerish barbarian, whose motions were blurs of quickness, possible only to steel views, knit to a perfect fighting brain. They floundered and stumbled, hindered by their own numbers, They struck too quick or too soon, and cut only empty air. He was never motionless or in the same place an instant. Springing, sidestepping, whirling, twisting, he offered a constantly shifting target for their swords, while his own curved blade sang death about their ears. But whatever their faults, the men of Zuthil did not lack courage. They swarmed about him, yelling and hacking, and through the arched doorways rushed others, awakened from their slumbers by the unwanted clamour. Conan, bleeding from a cut on the temple, cleared a space for an instant with a devastating sweep of his dripping sabre and cast a quick glance about for an avenue of escape. At that instant he saw the tapestry on one of the walls, drawn aside, disclosing a narrow stairway. On this stood a man in rich robes, vague-eyed and blinking, as if he had just awakened and had not yet shaken the dusts of slumber from his brain. Conan's sight and action were simultaneous. A tigerish leap carried him untouched through the hemming ring of swords, and he bounded toward the stair with the pack giving tongue behind him. Three men confronted him at the foot of the marble steps, and he struck them with a deafening crash of steel. There was a frenzied instant when the blades flamed like summer lightning. Then the group fell apart, and Conan sprang up the stair. The oncoming horde tripped over three writhing forms at its foot. One lay face down in a sickening welter of blood and brains. Another propped himself on his hands, blood spurting blackly from his severed throat veins. The other howled like a dying dog as he clawed at the crimson stump that had been an arm. As Conan rushed up the marble stair, the man above shook himself from his stupor, and drew a sword that sparkled frostily in the radium light. He thrust downward as the barbarian surged upon him, but as the point sang toward his throat, Conan ducked deeply. The blade slit the skin of his back, and Conan straightened, driving his sabre upward as a man might wield a butcher knife with all the power of his mighty shoulders. So terrific was his headlong drive that the sinking of the sabre to the hilt into the belly of his enemy Did not check him, he coroned against the wretch's body, knocking it sideways. The impact sent Conan crashing against the wall. The other, the saber torn through his body, fell headlong down the stair, ripped open to the spine from groin to broken breastbone. In a ghastly mess of streaming entrails, the body tumbled against the men rushing up the stairs, bearing them back with it. Half stunned, Conan leaned against the wall an instant, glaring down upon them, Then, with a defiant shake of his dripping sabre, he bounded up the steps. Coming into an upper chamber, he halted only long enough to see that it was empty. Behind him, the horde was yelling with such intensified horror and rage that he knew he had killed some notable man there on the stair, probably the king of that fantastic city. He ran at random, without plan. He desperately wished to find and succor Natala, who he was sure needed aid badly, but harried as he was by all the warriors in Zuthil, he could only run on, trusting to luck to elude them and find her. Among those dark or dimly lighted upper chambers, he quickly lost all sense of direction, and it was not strange that he eventually blundered into a chamber into which his foes were just pouring. They yelled vengefully and rushed for him, and with a snarl of disgust he turned and fled back the way he had come. At least he thought it was the way he had come, but presently, racing into a particularly ornate chamber, he was aware of his mistake. All the chambers he had traversed since mounting the stair had been empty. This chamber had an occupant who rose up with a cry as he charged in. Conan saw a yellow-skinned woman, loaded with jewelled ornaments, but otherwise nude, staring at him with wide eyes. So much he glimpsed as she raised her hand and jerked a silken rope, Hanging from the wall. Then the floor dropped from under him, and all his steel trap coordination could not save him from the plunge into the black depths that opened beneath him. He did not fall any great distance, though it was far enough to have snapped the leg bones of a man not built of steel springs and whalebone. He hit cat like on his feet and one hand, instinctively retaining his grasp on his saber hilt. A familiar cry rang in his ears as he rebounded on his feet as a lynx rebounds with snarling bared fangs. So Conan, glaring from under his tousled mane, saw the white naked figure of Natala writhing in the lustful grasp of a black nightmare shape that could have only been bred in the lost pits of hell. The sight of that awful shape alone might have frozen the Cimmerian with fear, in juxtaposition to his girl. The sight sent a red wave of murderous fury through Conan's brain. In a crimson mist, he smote the monster. It dropped the girl, wheeling toward its attacker, and the maddened Cimmerian sabre, shrilling through the air, sheared clear through the black viscous bulk, and rang on the stone floor, showering blue sparks. Conan went to his knees from the fury of the blow. The edge had not encountered the resistance he had expected. As he bounded up, the thing was upon him, It towered above him like a clinging black cloud. It seemed to flow about him in almost liquid waves, to envelop and engulf him. His madly slashing sabre sheared through it again and again. His ripping poniard tore and rent it. He was deluged with a slimy liquid that must have been its sluggish blood, yet its fury was no ways abated. He could not tell whether he was slashing off its members, or whether he was cleaving its bulk, which knit behind the slicing blade. He was tossed to and fro in the violence of that awful battle, and had a dazed feeling that he was fighting not one, but an aggregation of lethal creatures. The thing seemed to be biting, clawing, crushing and clubbing him all at the same time. He felt fangs and talons rend his flesh. Flabby cables that were yet hard as iron encircled his limbs and body, and worse than all, something like a whip of scorpions fell again and again across his shoulders, back and breast, tearing the skin and filling his veins with a poison that was like liquid fire. They had rolled beyond the circle of light, and it was in utter blackness that the Sumerian battled, once he sank his teeth, beast-like into the flabby substance of his foe, revolting as the stuff writhed and squirmed, like living rubber from between his iron jaws. In that hurricane of battle, they were rolling over and over, farther and farther down the tunnel, Conan's brain reeled with the punishment he was taking. His breath came in whistling gasps between his teeth. High above him, he saw a great toad-like face, dimly limbed in an eerie glow that seemed to emanate from it. And with a panting cry that was half curse, half gasp of straining agony, he lunged toward it, thrusting with all his waning power. Filt deep, the sabre sank, Somewhere below the grisly face, at a convulsive shudder, heaved the vast bulk that half enveloped the Sumerian. With a volcanic burst of contraction and expansion, it tumbled backward, rolling now with frantic haste, down the corridor. Conan went with it, bruised, battered, invincible, hanging on like a bulldog to the hilt of his sabre, which he could not withdraw, tearing and ripping at the shuddering bulk with the poniard in his left hand, goring it to ribbons. The thing glowed all over now with a weird phosphorus radiance, and this glow was in Conan's eyes, blinding him as suddenly the heaving, billowing mass fell away from beneath him, the sabre tearing loose and remaining in his locked hand. This hand and arm hung down into space, and far below him, the glowing body of the monster was rushing downward like a meteor. Conan dazedly realized that he lay on the brink of a great round well the edge of which was slimy stone. He lay there watching the hurtling glow dwindling and dwindling until it vanished into a dark, shining surface that seemed to surge upward to meet it. For an instant a dimming witchfire glimmered in those dusky depths. Then it disappeared, and Conan lay staring down into the blackness of the ultimate abyss from which no sound came. CHAPTER FOUR Straining vainly at the silk cords which cut into her wrists, Natala sought to pierce the darkness beyond the radiant circle. Her tongue seemed frozen to the roof of her mouth. Into that blackness she had seen Conan vanish, locked in mortal combat with the unknown demon, and the only sounds that had come to her straining ears had been the panting gasps of the barbarian, the impact of struggling bodies, and the thud and rip of savage blows. These ceased, and Natala swayed dizzily on her cords, half fainting, a footstep roused her out of her apathy of horror to see Conan emerging from the darkness. At the sight she found her voice in a shriek which echoed down the vaulted tunnel. The handling the Cimmerian had received was appalling to behold. At every step he dripped blood. His face was skinned and bruised, as if he had been beaten with a bludgeon. His lips were pulped, and blood oozed down his face from a wound in his scalp. There were deep gashes in his thighs calves and forearms, and great bruises showed on his limbs and body from impacts against the stone floor, but his shoulders, back and upper breast muscles had suffered most. The flesh was bruised, swollen and lacerated, the skin hanging in loose strips, as if he had been lashed with wire whips. (gasps) Hogan, she sobbed, what has happened to you? He had no breath for conversation, but his smashed lips writhed in what might have been grim humour as he approached her. His hairy breast, glistening with sweat and blood, heaved with his panting. Slowly and laboriously, he reached up and cut her cords, then fell back against the wall and leaned there, his trembling legs braced wide. She scrambled up from where she had fallen and caught him, in a frenzied embrace, sobbing hysterically. Oh, Conan, you are wounded under death. Oh, what shall we do? Well, he panted. "'You can't fight a devil out of hell and come off with a whole skin.' "'Where is it?' she whispered. "'Did you kill it?' "'I don't know. It fell into a pit. It was hanging in bloody shreds. But whether it could be killed by steel, I know not. "'Oh, your poor back!' she wailed, wringing her hands. "'It lashed me with a tentacle,' he grimaced, swearing as he moved. "'It cut like wire and burned like poison. "'But it was its damnable squeezing that got my wind.' It was worse than a python. If half my guts are not mashed out of place, I'm much mistaken. What shall we do? She whimpered. He glanced up. The trap was closed. No sound came from above. We can't go back through the secret door, he muttered. That room is full of dead men, and doubtless warriors keep watch there. They must have thought my doom sealed when I plunged through the floor above, or else they dare not follow me into this tunnel twist that radium gem off the wall. As I groped my way back up the corridor, I felt arches opening into other tunnels. Well, follow the first we come to. It may lead to another pit or to the open air. We must chance it. We can't stay here and rot. Atala obeyed, and holding the tiny point of light in his left hand and his bloody sabre in his right, Conan started down the corridor. He went slowly, stiffly, only his animal vitality keeping him on his feet. There was a blank glare in his bloodshot eyes and Natala saw him involuntarily lick his battered lips from time to time. She knew his suffering was ghastly but with the stoicism of the wilds he made no complaint. Presently the dim light shone on a black arch and into this Conan turned. Natala cringed at what she might see but the light revealed only a tunnel similar to that they had just left. How far they went she had no idea before they mounted a long stair and came upon a stone door, fastened with a golden bolt. She hesitated, glancing at Conan. The barbarian was swaying on his feet, the light in his unsteady hand flinging fantastic shadows back and forth along the wall. ''Open the door, girl,'' he muttered thickly. ''The men of Zuthal will be waiting for us, and I would not disappoint them. By Chrome, the city has not seen such a sacrifice as I will make.'' She knew he was half delirious. No sound came from beyond the door. Taking the radium gem from his blood-stained hand, she threw the bolt and drew the panel inward. The inner side of a cloth of gold tapestry met her gaze, and she drew it aside and peeked through, a heart in her mouth. She was looking into an empty chamber, in the center of which a silvery fountain tinkled. Conan's hand fell heavily on her naked shoulder. Stand aside, girl, he mumbled. Now is the feasting of swords. There is no one in the chamber she answered. ''But there is water.'' ''I hear it.'' He licked his blackened lips. ''We will drink before we die.'' He seemed blinded. She took his darkly stained hand and led him through the stone door. She went on tiptoe, expecting a rush of yellow figures through the arches at any instant. ''Drink while I keep watch,'' he muttered. ''No, I am not thirsty. Lie down beside the fountain and I will bathe your wounds. What of the swords of Zothil? He continually raked his arm across his eyes as if to clear his blurred sight. I hear no one. All is silent. He sank down gropingly and plunged his face into the crystal jet, drinking as if he could not get enough. When he raised his head, there was sanity in his bloodshot eyes, and he stretched his massive limbs out on the marble floor as she requested, though he kept his sabre in his hand, and his eyes continually roved toward the archways. She bathed his torn flesh and bandaged the deeper wounds with strips torn from a silk hanging. She shuddered at the appearance of his back. The flesh was discolored, mottled and spotted black and blue and a sickly yellow, where it was not raw. As she worked, she sought frantically for a solution to their problem. If they stayed where they were, they would eventually be discovered. Whether the men of Zuthul were searching the palaces for them or had returned to their dreams, she could not know. As she finished her task, she froze. Under the hanging that partly concealed an alcove, she saw a hand's breadth of yellow flesh. Saying nothing to Conan, she rose and crossed the chamber softly, grasping his poniard. Her heart pounded suffocatingly as she cautiously drew aside the hanging. On the dais lay a young yellow woman, naked and apparently lifeless. At her hand stood a jade jar nearly full of peculiar golden-coloured liquid. Natalie believed it to be the elixir described by Thallis, which lent vigour and vitality to the degenerate Zoothil. She leaned across the supine form and grasped the vessel, a poniard poised over the girl's bosom. The latter did not wake. With the jar in her possession, Natala hesitated, realising it would be the safer course to put the sleeping girl beyond the power of waking and raising an alarm, but she could not bring herself to plunge the Cimmerian poniard into that still bosom and at last she drew back the hanging and returned to Conan, who lay where she had left him, seemingly only partly conscious. She bent and placed the jar to his lips. He drank mechanically at first, then with a suddenly roused interest. To her amazement he sat up and took the vessel from her hands. When he lifted his face, his eyes were clear and normal. Much of the drawn, haggard look had gone from his features, and his voice was not the mumble of delirium. Cram! Where did you get this? She pointed. From that alcove where a yellow hussy is sleeping. He thrust his muzzle again into the golden liquid. By chrome, he said with a deep sigh. I feel new life and power rush like wildfire through my veins. Surely this is the very elixir of life. We had best go back into the corridor, Natalie ventured nervously. We shall be discovered if we stay here long. We can hide there until your wounds heal. Not I, he grunted. "'We are not rats to hide in dark burrows. "'We leave this devil city now and let none seek to stop us. "'But your wounds,' she wailed. "'I do not feel them,' he answered. "'It may be a false strength this liquor has given me, "'but I swear I am aware of neither pain nor weakness.' "'With sudden purpose he crossed the chamber to a window she had not noticed. "'Over his shoulder she looked out. "'A cool breeze tossed her tousled locks.' Above was the dark velvet sky, clustered with stars. Below them stretched a vague expanse of sand. Flannus said the city was one great palace, said Conan. Evidently some of the chambers are built like towers on the wall. This one is. Chance has led us well. What do you mean? She asked, glancing apprehensively over her shoulder. There is a crystal jar on that ivory table, he answered. Fill it with water and tie a strip of that torn hanging about its neck for a handle, while I rip up this tapestry. She obeyed without question, and when she turned from her task, she saw Conan rapidly tying together the long tough strips of silk to make a rope, one end of which he fastened to the leg of the massive ivory table. We'll take our chance with the desert, said he. Phallus spoke of an oasis, a day's march to the south, and grasslands beyond that. If we reach the oasis, we can rest until my wounds heal. This wine is like sorcery. A little while ago I was little more than a dead man. Now I am ready for anything. Here is enough silk left for you to make a garment of. Ritala had forgotten her nudity. The mere fact caused her no qualms. But her delicate skin would need protection from the desert sun. As she knotted the silk length about her supple body... Conan turned to the window and with a contemptuous wrench tore away the soft gold bars that guarded it. Then, looping the loose end of his silk rope about Natala's hips and cautioning her to hold on with both hands, he lifted her through the window and lowered her the thirty-odd feet to the earth. She stepped out of the loop and drawing it back up, he made fast the vessels of water and wine and lowered them to her. He followed them, sliding down swiftly, hand over hand. As he reached her side, Natala gave a sigh of relief. They stood alone at the foot of the great wall, the paling stars overhead and the naked desert about them. What perils yet confronted them, she could not know, but her heart sang with joy because they were out of that ghostly, unreal city. They may find the rope, grunted Conan, slinging the precious jars across his shoulders, wincing at the contact with his mangled flesh. They may even pursue us, but from what Thalys said, I doubt it. That way is south. A bronze muscular arm indicated their course, so somewhere in that direction lies the oasis, Cup. Taking her hand with a thoughtfulness unusual for him, Conan strode out across the sands, suiting his stride to the shorter legs of his companion. He did not glance back at the silent city, brooding dreamily and ghostly behind them. Conan Natala ventured finally. When you fought the monster, and later, as you came up the corridor, did you see anything of... "'Of Thallis?' He shook his head. It was dark in the corridor, but it was empty. She shuddered. "'She tortured me, yet I pity her. "'It was a hot welcome we got in that accursed city,' he snarled. Then his grim humor returned. "'Well, they'll remember our visit long enough,' I'll wager. "'There are brains and guts and blood to be cleaned off the marble tiles, "'and if their god still lives, he carries more wounds than I. "'We got off light, after all.' We have wine and water and a good chance of reaching a habitable country. Though I look as if I've gone through a meat grinder, and you have a sore. It's all your fault, she interrupted, if you had not looked so long and admiringly at that Stygian cat. Crom and his devils, he swore. When the oceans drown the world, women will take time for jealousy. Devil take their conceit. Did I tell the Stygian to fall in love with me? After all, she was only human. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production.